Amen. What's up, guys? Just to, uh, guys, if y'all have not met John yet, there's like a couple people in the world who I've ever met are maybe as nice as John is. And so uh, his time here with us and his leading in small groups, like uh, take that uh, time to just at least say hey to him uh, because there's something in, his, uh, in your soul that just meeting him will do for you. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Malachi this morning. And so if you've got your Bibles, uh, go ahead and get those out. Raise a hand if you don't have one. Uh, you can pull it out, use your phone, unless you've got an Android. Just leave that thing in your pocket. Can't afford you guys to take in all the iPhone service. Uh, but seriously, hey, we are going to be uh, using the, the message translation today. So I know we're, we're NIV people around here, but for the sake of how Eugene Peterson uh, writes and even translates this book, there's uh, just the language is, is, is so applicable uh, for us. And so in all seriousness, if you've got the Bible app on your phone and you want to pull up the message translation, that's what we're going to read this morning. It's not heresy, I promise. It's still a translation of God's Word. Uh, but this book, I've, I've just been, I've been sitting in it and studying it for the last quite a few weeks. And of all my study through Scripture, this is probably in the top 1% of studies that has just been wearing me out. Uh, it has just been doing a deep work in my soul. It has been uh, stirring things up. It has been convicting. Um, and there's just this, this heaviness in this passage. And, and I so wish we had six, seven weeks to, to go through this, but we got, uh, we got 40 minutes. So it's going to be condensed. It's going to be strong. Uh, but there is so much in here that if we really uh, allow what God is speaking to the Israelites, that, that it is uh, so easily applicable to where we are right now. So I want to I read this quote, though, from Eugene Peterson just in regards to the book of Malachi before we start. Eugene says that most of life is not lived in crisis, which is a good thing, for not many of us would be able to sustain a life of perpetual pain or loss or ecstasy or challenge. But crisis does have this to say for it. In time of crisis, absolutely everything is important and significant. Life itself is on the line. No word is casual. No action is marginal. And almost always in these times, God and our relationship with God is on the front page. However, during the humdrum times when things are, as we tend to say, normal, our interest in God is crowded to the margins of our lives and we become preoccupied with ourselves. Religion during such times is trivialized into asking God questions, calling God into question or complaining about Him. Treating the worship of God as just a mere hobby or a diversion, managing our personal affairs such as marriage for our own convenience and disregarding what God has to say about them. Going about our usual activities as if God were not involved in such dailiness. Eugene's going to write here, as we look to Malachi, he says that the people as, as created beings, the scripture says we are nothing more than just dirt and mud. He says that, that God realizes that we could not withstand a life if it was perpetually lived in crisis and in pain and in suffering and in always being kind of pressed down by life. So he says, when we enter into these seasons of freedom, when we enter into these seasons of, of some peace to where things are normal, as he would say, he's like, that's good. Like, we need, we need seasons like that, for we would break and snap under the pressure. 
But he says there is a warning, however, that we must heed in those times of normalcy. And it's that in these moments of comfort that complacency can kick in and there is this irreverence and passivity towards God that can creep in if we are not careful. And so we're going to read the Israelites, and the Israelites are now a hundred years after exile. They are no longer trapped in Babylon. They are no longer enslaved. They are free people. They are back in their home country. Uh, The temple has been rebuilt. Things are going really good for them. And a hundred years prior, they they were begging out to God of just, let us go home. We'll honor you. We'll serve you. We'll, We'll give you our best. And God brings them back home, and it takes just one or two generations down the road before the Israelites are like, no, nah, we're good. Like, I know, God, like we, we, we almost kind of use you as a pawn in our game to, to get back to where things are comfortable, but in comfort there is a danger that looms. And so even reflecting for us so much, like we're, we're, we're no longer in the crosshairs, uh, or sorry, we're no longer in the thick, I should say, of a pandemic. We are not the country that's in the crosshairs of war right now. Like gas prices aren't ideal, but I mean, other than gas, it's like, man, things are okay. Like for us as a culture, for us as the American church even, especially for us as Grace Monroe specifically, if we looked at our lives, we'd say, man, things are, things are going pretty good. I mean, generally speaking, life is comfortable. And and although that is a good thing, that we need seasons like that, we must heed the warnings that are going to come from Malachi of the danger of what happens when a church steps too far into comfort. So if you're taking notes this morning, I would write this down. The danger is that comfort breeds complacency, and complacency will lead to neglect. I'll say that again. Comfort breeds complacency, being just satisfied with where you are. And when we become complacent and satisfied with where we are, there will be neglect in our life. And we're going to look at, we're going to look at three main things this morning. Malachi, he covers kind of six topics that are kind of this question and answer where God will uh, basically kind of convict and, and approach the Israelites and call them out. The Israelites will basically say, no, we don't believe you, God, prove it. And God, as he does, he's going to have the last say, and he's going to prove it. And we don't have time to go into all six, but we are going to look at three uh, very applicable, very heavy, very convicting ones this morning that I believe that we really need to pay attention to. And before we get into the correction that God gives, if you'll open up to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2 simply says, God said, I love you. Before correction comes, before there is going to be this calling us kind of to the forefront and a little bit of discipline given, a little bit of correction that needs to be had, before God is going to deal with us a little bit, the first thing he says is, I want you to know that I love you. And as I read this, I was reflecting, like, when I look at my, my little three-year-old who is, uh, he is in the prime stage where discipline is needed, uh, and there's, there's, there's frequent amounts of it. And so, but when I look at my three-year-old and I have to discipline him, I don't look at him from the sense of, I hate you, I'm disappointed in you, you're such a screw-up, therefore I'm going to discipline you. Right, but I look at my son and I say, buddy, because I love you, 
because I want to see you grow up to be an honorable man, because I want to see you grow up to have respect and be a man of high character, because I want what's best for you as my child, I need to discipline you. I don't want you to just get away with that which you want to get away with, but because I love you, we need to deal with some of these things. And we read here the first thing God says before correction comes, before things are going to get a little dicey here in a bit, before we get there, he just says, and I want us to sit in this, that God says, I love you. I'm not going to correct you because I'm, I hate you, because I'm disappointed in you, because you're a failure. But because I love you, we need to deal with some of this. And so Jesus, as we prepare to, to open up this word deeper, as we prepare to hear your words. God, not ours, not anything that we have written down, but from your heart and your words, God, would we look through it from the lens of because you love us, so you correct your children. Holy Spirit, have your way through me, through this room, in the hearts of all of us, God. Please move, Jesus, we are expecting. Amen. We'll start chapter 1, verse 6. Isn't it true that a son honors his father and a worker his master? So if I am your father, where is the honor? If I'm your master, where is the respect? God of the angel armies is calling you on the carpet. You priests despise me. You say, not so. How do we despise you? By your shoddy, sloppy, and defiling worship. You ask, what do you mean defiling? What is defiling about it? When you say the altar of God is not important anymore, worship of God is no longer a priority, that is defiling. And when you offer worthless animals and sacrifices and worship animals that you're trying to get rid of, blind, sick, crippled animals, isn't that defiling? Try a trick like that with your banker or your senator. How far do you think you will get? God of the angel armies asks you, we read this and we see that he, he's talking to the priest. And so we could read that maybe say, well, I'm out. He ain't talking to me. I'm no priest. I'm really glad you, you brought that up. Because Revelation and, and in First Peter, like over and over again, Scripture will talk about that those of us who are now in Christ, we are the royal priesthood. Those of us that through the blood of Jesus have found surrender and we have found restoration to the Father. He says, you guys in this room who are, are followers of Jesus, me and you are like, we are the royal priesthood. And so as we read Old Testament scripture, we need to realize that he's not just talking to this select few that no longer applies to us, but because of Jesus, we are the priesthood who he is now addressing. And the first offense that he brings to his people is that you don't worship me with your best. The first thing God calls out, he says, in your comfort, in your time of things are, are normal and they're going well for you, he said, you're, you're starting to give me sloppy worship. He said, you're stepping into the place of worship and you're giving me worthless sacrifices. You're giving me the things that are, that are kind of tucked away in your closet that you just kind of want to get rid of. He said, when you come before me as a mighty God, because of your comfort, you become complacent and you are neglecting the fact, the simple fact that I am owed your best in worship. Verse 12 says, instead of honoring me, you profane me. He said, you profane me when you say worship is not important. 
and what we bring to worship is of no account. When you say, I'm bored, this doesn't do anything for me. You act so superior, sticking your noses in the air. You act superior to me, God of the angel armies. And when you do offer something to me, it's a hand-me-down, or it's broken, or useless. Do you think I'm going to accept it? This is God speaking to you. Malachi says that when we move into this place of comfort, we can just move into a place of neglect to God and then we become selfish in our worship to God because we remove him from the throne and elevate ourselves and say, when I step into worship, when I step into church, if I am not fed with this emotional high that I'm seeking, then, then I'm just bored. Right? We can walk into a church and be like, man, that, that preacher is just not doing it for me. I don't really like the way he teaches. I think his theology is maybe a little bit off. Like, I just didn't really connect there. So we move on to the next church. And we go in there and we think, ah, the worship's not quite up to my liking. I don't really know if I, if I like that lead singer or that drummer didn't really sound good. We move on to the next church. I mean, their kids' ministry just really wasn't up to my life. And we can go on and on and on. And if we find ourselves and we're not careful that our comfortability here in the American church, here especially in the South, we have groomed this culture that wants to feed the consumer. Like if we can just make this consumer friendly, then we can get butts in the seat. And God's saying, you, in doing so, you are defiling me because when we step into this place, it is to worship the God and the creator of all the world. And because of comfort and because of complacency, we are neglecting the rightful worship that that God is owed. And he's saying, stop it. Why are you in this for you? Do you not realize that I am creator, that I have molded you? And because things are normal for you, you're saying, man, I'll just give you what's left over. I'm just tired today. I just don't really want to engage. I'm Again, the church isn't really doing anything for me. And we allow the the consumer mindset of what our culture has created to then disrupt the ability for us to simply walk into this place and worship God. Verse 12. Oops, sorry. Let me back up. Verse 9. God says in response to this, he says, get on your knees and pray that I will be gracious to you. You priests have gotten everyone in trouble. With this kind of conduct, do you think that I'll pay attention to you? God of the angel armies asks, why doesn't one of you just shut the temple doors and lock them? Then not one of you can get in and play at this religion with this silly, empty-headed worship. I am not pleased The God of the angel armies is not pleased, and I don't want any more of this so-called worship. God actually says to his people, when you offer me this kind of worship, when you come to me with selfishness, when you are coming to just make yourself feel good, when Christianity becomes nothing more than than kind of like the organ donor sign on your, 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 your license, where we just hope that when we die, something of good will go to use. When we approach God with this half-hearted, sloppy worship, he said it's best if one of you would just go and lock that door. Just lock it. Don't come in here. It's best if you just lock it and stay out so that what you come in here is not defiling to me. And I have, 
I have sat in this and been so convicted and just asked, God, where for me, where as a church, where have we allowed half-hearted, sloppy, defiling, where, where do we step in here on a Sunday and we play at religion and we want to check a box, where have we allowed that to creep in to where when we gather, is there anywhere amongst us that in worship you look down and you say, guys, you're missing it. Like, you're not giving me your best. And I want us to allow this to convict us. I want this passage to, to begin to draw out, Lord, where, where are we not giving you our best? Where are we giving you secondhand, hand-me-down, sloppy worship? Because what we don't want is for anybody to lock that door. That door should be wide open all the time for us to step into this place. And he says, uh, in response, he said, it is to be on your knees and it is to repent and say, God, be gracious to us for where we have defiled you in worship. And on our knees, we say, God, will you draw out of us that which is not honoring to you so that when we step into this place, you will be worshipped rightfully as you deserve. God, where, where are you calling us out? Where are you asking us to, 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 to repent? Where are you asking us to give over so that what we give you is pure? Verse 11 says, I am honored all over the world. And there are people who know how to worship me all over the world, who honor me by bringing me their best. They are saying it everywhere. God is greater. God of the angel armies. And I've been meditating on that, even praying this week of like, Lord, would we be that church? Would we be the kind of people that, that when you look at you say, there are those, though not all, there are those who when they gather together, they worship me for who I am. They say, there is no one greater than our God, and I want to give you everything fully, Lord, refine out of me the impurities, refine out of me that which is defiling so that my best is brought to you in worship every single day. And I've been meditating on verse 11 of just saying, God, help us, help show us what it is that needs to be handed over so that we are the people who bring you, bring you our best. That everywhere we would be saying, God is greater, the God of the angel armies. May we, Lord, be this kind of people. May we be this kind of church. Chapter 2, verse 13. God says, here is a second offense. He says, you fill the place of worship with your whining and your sniveling because you don't get what you want from God. Do you know why? It's simple. Because God was there as a witness when you spoke your marriage vows to your young bride, and now you have broken those vows. You have broken the faith bond with your vowed companion, your covenant wife. God, not you, made marriage. His spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. And what does he want from marriage? Children of God, that's what. So guard the spirit of marriage within you. Don't cheat on your spouse. I hate divorce, says the God of Israel. God of the angel army says, I hate the violent dismembering of the one flesh of marriage. 
So watch yourself. Don't let your guard down. Don't cheat. In addition to sloppy, half-hearted worship, the Israelites were coming into the temple. They were coming into the place of worship, and they were complaining. They were saying, God, we're, we're praying. We're bringing all this stuff to you, but you're just not answering us. And they were whining, and they were complaining. And God says, do you, do you want to know why your prayers are being hindered? Do you want to know why your worship is running into a bit of a wall? And God says the same thing that, that Peter will reemphasize in 1 Peter 3.7. He says that the reason your worship and your prayers are being hindered is because there's become this lack of honor and respect and just this, this, this sacredness for your marriages. That somehow we see here that literally the unity of covenant and marriage, the joining together of one flesh, when you stand with your bride or you stand with the groom in, in that, that marriage meeting, and under the presence of God when you say, I do, and there's the consummation of that marriage, Scripture says that we are then joined into one flesh. And God will use marriage to parallel the covenant with He and us as, as, as sons and daughters to the God in the sense that the covenant of marriage and the covenant with God and His people was to last forever. It was to be held at such a high regard. It was to be valued deeply. And God says there is a hindrance in prayer that happens when you don't honor your marriage and your spouse. God, where have we replaced you in worship? Where have we uh, brought you lower and elevated self in the way that we worship you? And then God says, where have you removed me from your marriage? If we do not step into our marriages grounded in the foundation of you and your spouse, both pursuing the heart of God, and if we give the open door for selfishness to elevate ourselves, reality is we open that door up and the possibility of dismembering and dismantling of our marriages to take place. And God says, he says, his heart is, he says, man, I hate marriage. It was never, or I hate divorce. It was never meant to end this way. But why does God hate it? Because verse 16 says it is the dismembering, it is the ripping apart, it is the shredding of that one flesh that was formed on the day of your covenant. And we see here that divorce causes pain and suffering. It causes hurt in the lives of those who have had to go through it. And it hurts the heart of God because he said that's never the way it was intended to go. But when we elevate ourselves to a place of authority and we begin to live in our marriages in a way that says, I deserve this and I want this, and we allow our culture, which is, it is intentionally creating us this lustful desire for, for many different uh, uh, respects. But, but in this instance, like there is this this in movies and in social media and in what we see billboards, this, it, it grooms in us like, man, like, if you're not satisfied in your marriage, then there's something better for you. Right? You drive down the road and there's 1-800-DIVORCE. Right? Like there is, it, it is advertised that if you're not happy, then you can just sign a contract and get out of it. And we see that God's heart is it's not a contract. This isn't something that can just be shred when you're just not happy anymore, but it is to be it is to last a lifetime with you. And because there's dishonor in your marriage, 
It affects the way that, that even God intentionally listens and hears us. And I have wrestled with this, guys, for weeks now, just in preparation to talk about this. Because I'm like, Lord, how, how do you teach this in such a way that like, there is a heaviness and a conviction here? But yet there are some of you in this room statistically who have gone through divorce. And you know better than anyone of what that dismembering and that, that tearing apart does. And that there is pain there. And there is suffering in the soul here. And I want to pause for a second that if you've gone through that, as we started in, in, in chapter 1 and verse 2, God says, I love you. I don't hate you if you've gone through a divorce you are not condemned to hell all of a sudden because you've gone through divorce. I want to see your heart restored. I want to see you renewed. The reality is, though, that if there has been divorce, then there is the pain of the past that we've got to deal with. And unless we elevate Jesus to his rightful place as God and King, that full healing will never take place. There will never be full restoration and reconciliation if you're struggling in your marriage, if you are living a lifestyle that is leading towards the possibility of divorce, if you are seeking out divorce. No, again, God's heart is, I hate that. It's never the way it was intended to be. It's never the way it was meant to end. But because of Jesus, if we will replace him back on the throne as God, he promised there is healing that can come. There is restoration. There is reconciliation in your marriage that can take place if you will elevate me back to God of your marriage. The moment we remove him and we step into thinking that I deserve to be served this way, I deserve happiness, I deserve for my spouse to do whatever it may be, we begin to open up that door of selfishness. And selfishness can breed this opportunity for Satan to just, he's just looking for a way to come in and disrupt you. He is prowling around. He's just looking for a way. If I can just find some kind of way to hook into their marriage and start trying to cause division, maybe I can dismantle something that God created to be perfect. He created it to be life-giving. He created you and your spouse to join together for his presence to dwell among you and your family to be used here on earth. But once we remove him, we open up that door of possibility. And God's saying, please, guard yourself. Watch yourself. Put up accountability. Who are the men or the women that you need in your life? As John talked about, even grace groups, like where is the community that we need to establish around us to give some accountability who are the people that I need to go or, or to and, and repent with them before the Lord and ask maybe for the first time for God to really step into our marriage because when I try to love my wife, when I try to raise my kids, when I try to worship God on my own accord, I will always come up short. But somehow through this removal of ourselves, actually through making ourselves less and making ourselves weaker and saying, Jesus, I, I, I am making a mess of my life, particularly I'm making a mess of my marriage, will you please step in? That there is reconciliation, there is healing, there is redemption in that. And in doing so, it is one of the ways that we return back and give proper worship to God. She said, man didn't create marriage. This wasn't your idea. 
I love, he says, I am in the smallest details. I am in the, the little aspects of what you may see as the mundane day-to-day with your spouse. I am in the little details. We must elevate Jesus back to the throne of our lives, and in doing so, we can see those things restored and redeemed and healed. Chapter 3, verse 7. He says, return to me so that I can return to you, says the God of the angel armies. You ask, but how do we return? Begin by being honest. Do honest people rob God? But you rob me day after day. You ask, how have we robbed you? The tithe and the offering, that's how. And now you're under a curse, the whole lot of you, because you're robbing me. Bring your full tithe to the temple treasury so that there will be ample provisions in my temple. Test me in this and see if I don't open up heaven itself to you and pour out blessing beyond your wildest dream. For my part, I will defend you against martyrs, protect your wheat fields and vegetable gardens against plunderers. The message of the God of the angel armies. You will be voted happiest nation. You will experience what it's like to be a country of grace. God of the angel armies says so. Anybody else get a little nervous? I'm talking about money now. He's like, man, we need to get out of here. Here's the, here's the reality. Is that every single one of us gives a tithe and an offering. All of us do. Because tithe and offering simply means that we are bringing our first and our best. And so some of you might literally, with what you earn or what you make, you might bring your first and your best to a tithe and an offering to ministry. You may literally be giving that towards kingdom purposes. But there's some of us who wouldn't say we tithe and offer, and even though we do, and we give that to the truck payment that we just had to have. Right? We give that towards our spending, or our, our gambling habit. We give that through our weekly target runs. Right? Like Marshalls has moved to town, man. We love going to some Marshalls. There's some deals in there. Right? We can give our first and our best of what we make to something. All of us, we all give some form of a tithe or offering. And whatever it may be, our bank statement is like an MRI to who is on the throne of our life. Right, like you can go to the doctor, and the doctor can kind of give you a checkup. You can even get an, an x-ray, and it'll show you a little bit of what's going on. You get an MRI, it shows you the details and the intricacy of what's really going on. Right, like I've had many an MRI in my day, <laughs> playing sports. And that MRI is what you go get to show what's really going on at the root. And if we'll let it, our bank statement is kind of like an MRI to the throne of our life. God will say, or Jesus will say in the Gospels that you can't serve both God and money. Like, you will always choose one. And one of the ways we can tell who is on the throne of our life, who are we really sought out for worshiping, who is of the highest importance to us, can be through the way our bank account looks. And in comfort and in complacency, we lead into neglect, and then we begin to think, well, I earned that. Right? Like, I worked hard to make that money. I deserve to spend it the way I want to spend it. Like, the, like the idea, if you go outside of a, of a follower of Jesus and, and begin to try to explain to them why giving away 10% of your money is a good idea, or even more, 
It, is, it makes no rational sense. I was having lunch with somebody even the last week or two, and it's like, it, it doesn't make sense why we would give away a portion of what we've earned. But yet, again, selfishness will tell us, you're right, you deserve all of that. You deserve to keep it all because you've earned it. And the reality is, Scripture tells us that every good and perfect gift is from God. Meaning, the talent and the ability that you even have as a construction worker was given to you by God's ability to train your mind and groom you in such a way that is bent towards being good at that. If it is to be a teacher, God is giving you giftings and abilities and talents that bends you towards a way that makes you a good teacher. Whatever your trade would be. You did not just wake up one day and think, for me, I mean, I would love to, believe it or not, be a tattoo artist. And I don't have the first drop of artistic ability in my body. No matter how bad I would love to learn to be a tattoo artist, God did not bend my mind in such a way to be a tattoo artist. But he has given me specific giftings, specific uh, things that he has created me for to go and earn my living. Every good and perfect gift is from God. The giftings that we get through working hard at what he's gifted us to do is God's blessing to us. And he says, you want to return to me in a way that is honoring and worship, then stop robbing me with that which I have entrusted to you. It is God's anyway. As quick as you got it, he could take it away. As quick as he, he gave your house to you, your car, what. As quick as those things came, just as quick they could be gone. And God says, you want to return to me and worship, then honor me with your wallet. Verse 10, he says, test me in this. See if I don't open up heaven itself to you and pour out a blessing beyond your wildest dreams. Verse 12, you will be voted the happiest nation You'll experience what it's like to be a country of grace. And the reality is, God says, there is actually joy that comes through giving. Like, even though we can't fully understand why we would give away a large portion of our income, God says, if you will trust me in this, there is this depth of joy and freedom and peace that you will experience that you can't even understand. He actually says, in some translations, said, see if I don't open up the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing over you. And I want to be cautious because this is in no way a prosperity-driven bent towards giving and generosity. But rather what it is, it is saying, God, I am so thankful. There is gratitude in my soul for the way that you have provided for me and my family. Far be it from me if I hold that back and rob you of that. But then in this joyous state, we say, God, what what do you want me to do? We talked a couple weeks ago about as the kingdom of God is here in the book of Mark, one of the ways that we step into the kingdom of God is through giving. That somehow we can actually partner with God's kingdom here on earth by saying, God, whatever I have, the resources that you have given me, you tell me where you want it, and it is my joy to partner with you. It is my joy to engage in kingdom practice. It is my joy to see your heaven somehow be influenced on earth by simply just being able to give back to you what is yours anyway. And he says, this is one of the ways that we actually return. See if I won't bless the gift and the giver. Like, man, I could share a long time just about 
um, the, the testimony for my family now, for Grace and I, since we've been married, uh, of honoring God in this area. And it may be at times a financial blessing. It may be, it may be health over your children. It may be there being health in your marriage, but God promises. He actually says in Scripture here, test me. Not many places does God say test me. That's a, that's a fine line for us to walk. But in the form of giving, he says, test me in this and see if I will not honor and bless the gift and the giver. And for you, I don't know how that blessing may be returned. That is not for me to speak into. But I can tell you from testimony of practice that there is no spiritual discipline. There is few as great as giving that I would ever ever, ever advise as heavily as this one for your family, for what you get to do as a couple, for, for how you get to partner with God's kingdom here. It is massively impactful. There is just this peace. There is this freedom and joy that is tied to giving. And God says, you want to return to me? You want to begin to bring me your best again? Then start by not robbing me the band if you guys want to head back up this way and so we ask God where is it how might we be restored to you how might we begin to to worship you in a way that is honoring to you how might we find reconciliation and redemption in our marriage how do I begin to move to a place of honoring you with my wallet and it's chapter 1, verse 9, says it starts by getting on your knees and praying that he will be gracious to us. It is this form of repentance. It is this place of, of getting down. And I love even studying through the posture of being on our knees. Because when we are on our knees, it is literally telling our body to get in this place that is of submission. Because I realize I am not the one who's in control. And so when I bow, when I lower myself, it is saying, God, you are higher than me. You are above me. You are God and in control. And the first way that we return is by getting on our knees and saying, God, will you be gracious to us and forgive us to where we have stepped out of line? And in chapter 3, verse 2, 3, right around in there, He writes this, and for these people, they were looking for the one that was to come, and we know that he has come, and it says that he will be like hot fire from a smelter's furnace. He will be like the strongest lye soap at the laundry. He'll take his place as a refiner of silver, as a cleanser of dirty clothes. He will scrub the Levite priests clean, refine them like gold and silver until they are fit for God, fit to present offerings of righteousness. Then and only then will Judah and Jerusalem be fit and pleasing to God as they used to be in the years long ago. We start from this place of humbly on our knees saying, God, where do we need to repent? God, where have we been bringing you half-hearted worship? Where have we been cheating you? God, where do I need you to restore my marriage? Where do I need you to bring healing maybe for my past and what our marriage has brought forth? God, how do I bring forth my best even in giving? And he says that there was one to come 
who we knew or we know has come. And it says that he is going to come and he is going to sit as a refiner of silver and gold. And this picture is that he is going to heat up the silver. And as the silver is heated up, it brings forth the impurities and and the ugliness of the silver to the surface. And he's sitting there and he's scraping off the impurities. And refining, it takes a heating, it takes things to get hot, it takes things to get a little uncomfortable, but in that process, he is cleaning off the surface of the impurities that are brought to the surface so that at the end, he can look down and see his reflection. And then the other beautiful side is that it's this picture of a launderer, it says, with the strongest of soaps, to where he is then saying, some of you guys need to be just gently cleaned. Some of you guys just need to to come so that that I can just begin to wash you. I can just begin to to help take some of the grime and the dirt and the gunk off your life. And he says, I want to come and make you pure. And that through the refining, through the, the cleansing, Jesus says, I want you to be restored to the Father. That is why I came. I didn't come so that you could feel good on a Sunday morning. I didn't come so that you could check a box and try to slide in. I came so that I could purify you and cleanse you and redeem you because we all have the tendency. We all have the ability to slip into comfort and passivity and slip into a neglect for who God is. And he says, man, if you will let me, if you will bow in reverence to me and repent, I want to clean that stuff out of you. I want to heal you. And so we're going to step into a time of worship now. And I would ask just that, that Holy Spirit, you would come into this room and that you will begin to stir in us. Where are the places that we have not brought you our best? Where are the places that we have become selfish? Where are the places, God, that that we have defiled you in our hearts or in our lives and our marriages and the way that we handle what you've given us? God, we don't want to play at religion. We want to abide in the relationship with you. And so will you draw out of us the impurities? Even right now, will you begin to bring things to mind? Jesus, show us what is it that we need to confess to you. Jesus, what are the things that we need to repent of? What do you want to refine out of us? Come, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on us. Will you please, Holy Spirit, move amongst this place that the worship we give you in this time would be honoring and holy and pleasing to you.